Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have the incredible honor of welcoming Dr. Joseph Iannotti to the podcast. Dr. Iannotti is the Chairman, CEO, President, and Chief of Staff of the Cleveland Clinic, Florida. Dr. Iannotti received his medical degree from Northwestern before going to the University of Pennsylvania for an orthopedic residency and a PhD. He then joined the staff, where he was for two decades before joining the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Iannotti has been responsible for hundreds of important contributions to our field. He has over 200 peer-reviewed manuscripts, has received multiple NEAR awards, and has written multiple textbooks. He's also a prior member of the AAOS Board of Directors and a prior president of the SES. Dr. Arinati, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. One of the things I, I wanted to ask about you is that um, one of the things I've always admired about your career is you've made major contributions in really a wide variety of areas. For, for instance, your prospective cuff healing study has changed the way I talk about every cuff repair I do, while your work on the glenoid vault has dramatically changed pre-op planning. Can you tell us a little bit about your strategy for research? How have you gone about, a, about which studies to perform, and how has that enabled you to do what you do in all these different areas? Well, you know, I think many of us who have been um, successful in research by and large are curious about the things that we treat and the, the uh, areas that are controversial. And I've been blessed uh, by working at institutions that have allowed me to, you know, look at these types of issues or problems uh, with a certain amount of scientific rigor. You know, many of us that are in clinical practice and do really great work every day are not in an environment or don't work with people that allow you to, to do this type of work. So, you know, between the University of Pennsylvania and the Cleveland Clinic, you know, I've been um, fortunate uh, to have both resources and, and, and colleagues. I mean, none of us are smart enough to, to be able to answer some of these types of questions or do this type of research uh, independently. You know, this whole concept of, you know, failure with continuity um, was something that I thought about for a long time, but it wasn't until um, we did a series of animal experiments um, that related to looking at primary rotator cuff repair. And I, I did that with Kathy Derwin here at uh, Cleveland Clinic. And, you know, we saw this sort of healing of tissue that looked like tendon-like material, um, but we knew from looking at the entire tendon muscle unit that this tissue had stretched out and really the area or the tendon that we had attached or reattached to the bone really wasn't what we were looking at histologically. And for quite some time, we said, well, that doesn't happen in human beings because in the animal model, the rotator cuff is extracapsular. And we figured, well, that, that's a common problem in 
MCL repair and MCL healing, but that wouldn't happen in a synovial tendon, uh, which is what you're dealing with in the human being. Uh, but we began to test that um, and look at placing markers in the tendon. So, you know, we initially did it in very simple ways with, with, um, with x-ray, and we realized that this was no way that we could possibly measure that in a two-dimensional way. Uh, it was unreliable and imprecise. So had it not been the fact that we were working with imaging people and bioengineers, we would have never, I would have never been able to uh, try to answer that question of, you know, how do tendons heal and what is the concept of failure with continuity? You know, the vault model, you know, as a means for preoperative assessment of uh, bone loss in the glenoid, you know, that, that again was a concept that we evolved into because we were interested in looking at three-dimensional imaging and it not been for the fact that we were dealing with some pretty talented people in software development and software programming and image analysis, you know, we would not have gone that route. Um, and once we got there, then I understood because I'm a surgeon and a clinician, I understood the clinical value. I mean, they developed the software, we collectively developed the concepts, but at the end of the day, had I not been in that environment and had it not been that I was part of that, we wouldn't have understood the clinical relevance or the clinical utility. Um, you know, had I not been at the Cleveland Clinic, you know, I wouldn't have had a group of people that would have allowed me to go for funding uh, and to develop a spinoff company in order to, you know, take those basic concepts and bring them to a clinical uh, clinical product. So again, you know, I, I think we have to realize that we're all part of teams. And if you're lucky enough and you're able to cultivate those teams because you do those things in sort of a very, a curious way. I mean, if you're curious and you're willing to ask good questions, and more importantly, you're willing to put in the time and the work to answer them, and you happen to be in an environment with real talented people in multiple different disciplines, then you can put these teams together. Um, and if you do that for 30 or 40 years, you can kind of get a few things accomplished uh, because they take a long time. Uh, and one of the things that I guess I have focused on is that if you're going to make progress, you can't dabble in a lot of different areas. You've got to plan on asking tough questions and doing the hard work and expect that it's going to take you several years uh, in order to begin to make a dent and make some real progress uh, in answering these questions. So I've spent a lot of time trying to really develop methodologies, develop techniques, really understand an area rather than spending as much time on sort of cohort analysis or cohort studies, which, you know, I've done my share of them, but I, I try to stay away from those types of studies. So it's, it's super interesting. It sounds like a lot of it is a 
for you, the key is involved collaboration and finding teams with skill sets for people who can do things that you can't do. Tell, tell us how you found those people. How, 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 I mean, you've been lucky, it sounds like, to be at places where those people are around, but how do you then identify no. people to work with and what are your strategies to build those teams? I, I think you've got to find serious researchers that because of the type of work they do, you as a clinician and a serious investigator, I, I think you've got to you've got to be careful not to be parasitic when you're dealing with talented research people because their time is valuable too. But you try to find people whose work really benefit, you benefit their work. They're asking clinically relevant questions. They're doing research in basic science areas that are looking for an outlet. They're looking for someone that either brings uh, a serious commitment to being a collaborator that understands the disease process, takes care of those patients, understands where the gap in knowledge is between what current care is at that point in time and what the future might look like. So you as a clinician, you're not a parasite. You're not, you're not asking of their time where it's a one-way street, it's a two-way street. And they could never accomplish what they would want to do without your, your input as a surgeon and as a clinician. So you look for those people, you know, and, and, and in certain um, environments, you know, School of Bioengineering, School of Public Health, um, Biomaterials Department, Bioengineering Department, those people exist. Uh, and as an orthopedic surgeon, those collaborations are very fruitful and are, are bilateral. Um, you know, there are clearly some um, collaborations that are in molecular biology and genetics and things that those kinds of collaborations are also very valuable. And you can discover major things in musculoskeletal disease and pathogenesis. But most surgeons don't quite have that skill set uh, to be true collaborators. And so most of the things are in things that I guess are more innately part of clinical medicine, engineering and biomaterials and software and uh, instrument design and uh, things that relate to the things that most clinicians can contribute to if they're serious you know so most clinicians you know they've got to have time they've got to be willing to give up you know some of their free time and hours and evenings and weekends um but also they have to be willing to meet these research people during normal monday through friday so you know i've been doing this for 40 years and you know I have always had a 20% commitment uh, minimum 20% commitment of my time for research and and that included 20 years where I earned less money because I wasn't seeing patients or doing surgery so it wasn't as if I was a salaried person and uh, said, well, it doesn't matter. My salary is not going to be any different if I 
don't do, you know, more surgery or more care. So at some point, you know, you have to self-restrain and say, okay, what's, what's important to me? Um, you know, and the reality is, particularly for people who don't necessarily uh, sort of see the forest from the trees, you know, if you do really good work and you discover things that are advanced the field, there are opportunities in order for you as a clinician to financially gain from that work because you can monetize that as a commercializable product. You know, so, you know, what I've always said, it, it, you know, it's never been my intent to, um, to um, um, you know, develop products just for the sake of developing products. I've tried to answer important questions and if they're clinically relevant and sometimes they do lead to financially um, positive gain for the inventor. Um, again, I think you have to be focused on what's the value proposition to the science. But as I said, if it's clinically relevant and you really advance the field, the chances are pretty good that, that there's going to be some financial reward. And it could be through consulting. It could be through, you know, intellectual property that's developed and licensed, or it could be a spinoff company or, or things like that. Again, I've never kind of looked at that as the goal. It was often the byproduct, but but again, it's 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 not as if it's you know research doesn't have a financial um, value proposition. Dr. Iannotti, early in your career, you took the unusual step of getting a PhD in cell biology, and I think now more than ever, even those science-minded orthopedic residents and orthopedic fellows or even physicians who, who, you know, practicing physicians who want to pursue that PhD because of some of the financial constraints choose not to. Um, tell us about taking that step back when you did. What led you to make that decision? Obviously, you're very motivated and, and successful with research, but that was a decision early in your career. Um, what led you to make that decision to formally pursue a PhD instead of just incorporating research into your career like so many others do? Um, obviously, incredibly successful, but we'd love to hear about it. Well, you know, I, I always thought that if you're going to do something well, you've got to be pretty serious about it and give it a lot of time and effort. And I just took the track of saying, well, if I'm going to put in that type of time and effort, I'm going to get a degree because it's a very formal process of, of learning and being challenged and you have to jump through a bunch of hoops that you might not have to jump through if you were just spending similar amount of time. Um, but, you know, the driving force for me was that I just like asking questions that, and more importantly, I like answering them. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys know a fellow named Arnie Kaplan, but Arnie um, is a PhD scientist. He's the guy that defined the mesenchymal stem cell and the lineage that you can take a bone matter, bone marrow progenitor cell and through a variety of environmental and other manipulations, you can drive it to become a chondrocyte or an osteocyte or, or a, a myocyte. And so he, you know, and he won the Kappa Delta Award 
for that work. And I think most of us who don't really know him by name know of the work that he did. And this is probably 30 or 40 years ago, you know, and he and I were good friends and we've done research over the years together. But he said something to me that was very sort of impactful. And he said, you know, Joe, ideas are cheap. It's really the data that's expensive. Uh, and there's lots to say about that because the expense is not always money. It, the expense is your time and your effort. But if you want to answer questions, and most surgeons have a lot of questions, it's they sometimes don't have the, the environment or the will or the skill set or the right collaborators to begin to answer them. Um, so for me, getting the graduate degree was pretty important and you know i wanted to pick an area that was rigorous enough that it wasn't a lightweight graduate degree because some people go a route where the kind of work or the kind of rigor that they have to do to get the degree sometimes is not as rigorous so you know i did it as part of after med school i did it after my residency you know sort of part of my residency, but like another four years after residency, uh, because I really believed that it was going to be part of my life. It was going to be part of my career. I didn't know exactly how I was going to meld it together. Um, and I don't do a whole lot of cell biology. I did that for about 20 years. But, you know, I, I knew deep down that 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 skill set that formal education, that rigor that you have to have to get a degree was was going to be useful to me. And I can honestly say it was probably as important to me and my success even to this day as going to med school or doing a residency. It made me think of how to think and how to ask questions and how to collaborate with people and how to collaborate with people that um, are real scientists, are serious scientists, that if you can't come to the table with being a serious collaborator, meaning giving your real time and your real intellectual input, they don't want to have much to do with you because you because that to them is a parasitic relationship. You know, they're giving you their time and intellect, which costs them money because they're not doing other things that will get them grants or publications. And so I learned that in my graduate training, that that is what, if you're a clinician and you want to do this type of work, that's what you've got to bring to the table. Otherwise, it's a relationship that will not, you know, have a long duration. You know, the, the, the people that I've worked with, um, you know, at Penn, it was Lou Soslowski. I mean, we had many, many years. And Kathy Derwin has been my collaborator in, in innumerable projects for, for 20, 20 years. And, you know, Kathy is a, um, as serious a research in, investigator as you can get. But she is exactly the type of person who... Um, who makes really great collaborator because the stuff that she's interested in doing requires patient material, requires surgeons, requires the, the, the input 
of multiple people that are on the clinical side of healthcare delivery. And so it's it's not a parasitic relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, and it, and one and one is, is equals four or five. Um, and the people that she brings to the table to a research program are other postdocs and other doctoral uh, scientists that, that would not be there if it were not her uh, effort and time. So it's, it's, it's sort of like building a great OR team. You know, you could be a great surgeon, but you're not going to get the results that you should get if you didn't put together the other people that are equally dedicated and equally committed to patient care, because things are going to fall through the fall through the the the, the netting if if you know if your nurse or your PA or your or the people in the OR are not equally committed and dedicated, and they bring things and skills that you don't bring. And, and you know, it's, it's the collective that makes, makes it really work where, you know, you do 500 cases a year and very few of them have problems because of omissions or because of not having a rigorous set of, of best practices. Same is true for research. You you got to have bring those teams together, uh, and you got to you got to share the, the you got to share the risk. And you got to also share the reward. I mean, the stuff that we put together for you know the preoperative testing and uh, excuse me the, the preoperative planning and patient specific instruments. I mean that yielded many many millions of dollars in royalties and and uh, licensing fees that was spread out over a lot of people uh, because they put their heart and soul into putting that together. So, you know, it was not a, it was not a, a, a situation where you, you didn't reward the people that, that did the hard work. It's really refreshing to hear your perspective on this and on the role of the true surgeon scientist. Um, as a follow-up to this topic, you know, I, I, I have a personal interest in this I, as I did a year of research between my second and third years of med school, certainly nothing at, at the level of a PhD, but I, I pursued this simply out of intellectual curiosity about some of the research that led to surgical techniques that I, I personally benefited from as a patient. And I, I chose to pursue that area with those surgeons. What are your thoughts, you know, as, as not only a researcher and a surgeon, but as an educator and a leader, what are your thoughts on students taking a year out um, for research? or residents matching into a program with built-in research years. You know, obviously a lot of students do this to boost their CV to get into programs. And a lot of residents will just match into any program they can simply to match. Uh, but some do this because of intellectual curiosity or because they truly love the field and love the science and have questions. What are your thoughts when you evaluate those applicants where you see that gap year, you see a research year? How do you, how do you approach those, um, those individuals relative to the average applicant who may not have done that? You know, I, Rachel, I think you are a thousand percent correct in the observation that it's about the intent. You know, what drives that person to do what they do? And I think it's difficult to, to get in a um, in an interview, you know, where you say, well, I'm spending 15 minutes with this person. You know, you ask them, why do they want to be in academic medicine? And, and a lot of them 
will have sort of a standard, you know, cookie cutter response. I want to educate. I want to teach residents. Occasionally, you'll get somebody who you really see that they have this burning passion to answer questions. They are they are intellectually curious, and those people are. You see it in high school. You see it in college. You see it in residency. They they're they're driven to say not just why, you know, what why is do I not know this, but they're willing to go out and find out. And you know, as I said, ideas are cheap. It's the data that's expensive. And and I think it almost doesn't matter um, if you do one year or you do ten years or whatever you do. There are people who are just intellectually curious. They're willing to put the time and effort in, and they do it. And some of them don't have PhD. Many of them don't have PhDs, and many of them didn't necessarily take a year or two out from their formal training. They're just their personality, and they're willing. You know, a good example for me is a guy named Steve Howell. Uh, Steve is a orthopedic surgeon. We went to med school together at Northwestern. And he was in the military. Um, he went to Jefferson, did his orthopedic residency at Jefferson. He was about a year, maybe a year, two years difference in our, our training time. But Steve never stayed in the military for his time. And then he went into private practice, solo private practice in Sacramento. The guy has contributed substantially in the areas of shoulder, uh, understanding the, the issues around uh, compression, concavity compression and stability around the joint, shoulder joint. He's contributed to this whole concept of kinematic balancing of the knee. He's developed a bunch of ACL guides with almost no resources. He, he collaborated with his bioengineer at UC Davis. Uh, as I said, he's been in private practice for 40 years. The guy is insatiable about his interest to answer questions. He's curious. He's willing to put time and effort into doing the work. And he's, he, as I said, you can't stop him. <laughs> and he is one of those people that you'd say, well, how the hell did he do that? I mean, he didn't have, he went out, he sought the resources, he found the collaborators. You know, I, there are innumerable people that are in private practice. Mark Frankel is another example of a guy that you'd say, how the hell did he do that? I mean, he, he yeah, he's sort of in a large group, he's at Tampa, but he has put his own, a lot of his own money from his pocket that he could have bought a car or whatever the hell people do. He, he funded his own lab in, in his own practice. Most of the guys in that group don't do that. But, you know, he's the kind of person who, who just whatever it takes, he's going to do it to answer the question. So I, I think there are a lot of us out there. Some of us got degrees, but many of us didn't. And it's not the one year or the time off. It's your personality. It's your in it, your your desire 
to say, I want to answer this question. And, and I'm willing to put the time and effort into doing it or the money or whatever the, whatever it is. I'm willing to write the grant. I'm willing to get the rejection of, you know, writing the proposal and getting nothing except, you know, nice, nice work, you know, you, that maybe next time and go back and do it again. Most of us don't do that. Most of us, you know, especially orthopedic surgeons. I mean, you know, we're we're blessed with being able to help people in two hours. You know, we go to the operating room, you change the joint, you fix their ligament, they get better in six months, a year. They think you're you're great. So we're used to short-term gratification. So our personalities are not the typical personality where you're going to spend 10 years trying to answer one question and accept all that rejection along the way. Um, certainly a fascinating reflection here. I think it's always useful for young faculty here, just the amount of time and resources and rejection you have to go through to make progress. As chairman of the Cleveland Clinic, I'm sure you've mentored hundreds of young faculty, fellows, residents, students. T tell us what advice you usually give in, in those meetings. What are the best piece of advice you have for young people who are seeking to make their way? Well, I think you gotta, you gotta know yourself. Um, and, at some, and sometimes that takes a while uh, to know what are your drivers. I mean, I think all of us, you know, every person that I've ever trained, any person that I've said is a friend, regardless of what they do, you know, first and foremost, I would say you got to be honest, you got to be ethical, and you got to put patients first and the quality of the care ahead of everything else that you do. If you do that, then you've checked whatever box you need to check to say, I went into medicine for the right reasons and I'm a really good doctor. And then you're done. Now, if you say, well, that's the entry level for, you know, what I want, then, you know, the sky's the limit uh, after that. I mean, then it's just a matter of saying, okay, I checked the box for being a good doctor, ethical, you know, really in the interest of the patient. Uh, I want to make people better. I want them to benefit from the skills that I have. But then you say, well, maybe I want to teach. Maybe I want to write a book. Maybe I want to do some research. Uh, but I think, you know, when you have a young person, a resident or um, a graduate student or anybody like that, early on, you have to figure out what is it that you want? And if you just want to be a good doctor and a great, you know, surgeon and help the community, that's perfectly fine. That, that could be the beginning and the end. It's when you deviate from those basic principles that I'd say, you know, why'd you do this? You could have gone into business. You could have, you know, you're... If you went to med school and you got a good residency and you worked that damn hard, you probably could have made a lot of money doing a whole lot of other things than to be taking care of human beings. I think the thing I've learned, and I've learned this the hard way, and I've learned it 
years after I should have learned it, is that I cannot make people do things because I think they should do that or because I see something in them that they don't see and they don't want. Every time I've done that, because I thought I was a crusader or a evangelical or whatever the hell you want to label it, it has never worked out because it's not in their DNA. It's not in their soul. It's not what they want. And the, but the people who that's what they want, I mean, you can, you can, you can help them a lot because, you know, most of the time they want, they have the desire, they have the work ethic, but sometimes they deviate. They go in places that are not productive or, or they don't have the resources. I mean, when you get to a point where you're an apartment chair or you're an institute chair or you're a CEO or you're whatever, you've got resources. You've got things that you could, you know, dole out. And what you try to do is not waste them because they're not replenishable. You know, you use them, they're gone. Uh, so you try to, find the right people. But once you find those people, I mean, that is a huge return on investment. Um, so that's what, what I try to find. I try these days, last 10, 15 years. Well, actually it's probably the last 20. Last time I made this big mistake was, um, you know, it's probably about 15 years ago. Um, very notable mistake was the last one of trying to impart my, my vision on somebody else. Uh, but since then, you know, I, you kind of listen to people and it's, again, it's not a 10 minute interview. You gotta, <clears throat> you kind of have to get on, uh, you know, look under the covers. It takes a while to really find out what makes somebody drive them to do something. But, you know, and I've, I've had the fortune to, you know, probably two or three dozen people that I can think of off the top of my head who, um, you know, I've had the pleasure to work with and they have, you know, turned out to be superstars and have in turn, you know, generated similar scenarios with the people they, they've worked with and they've mentored. So, you know, it's it's sort of a family of, of you know, your your progeny, so to speak, uh, you know, and it's fun. It's it's it, that's probably as rewarding you know, is discovering something or inventing something, you know, that actually has probably more longevity than the stuff that you think about and sort of becomes the new fad and 10, 15 years later, it's, you know, replaced by something else. Dr. Ayanati, your contributions to ASCS and to the field of shoulder surgery in general have, you know, have simply been incredible. With respect to ASCS, can you tell us some of your favorite memories from ASCS meetings over the years? Um, you've obviously been to quite a few of these meetings in various different roles. Um, do you have any specific memory that sticks out to you over the last couple decades or anything that you, you know, that, well, that yeah. you know, yeah, I do. Probably the best meeting I ever went to, and I don't think it was because it was my first meeting. Uh, but it was my first meeting. Um, it was Rick Matson was the president of ASCS and it was in Seattle, Washington. And, um, you know, I didn't know what the hell to expect. I mean, 
Rick had a, a very, very different meeting than uh, I think has ever been held since that time or before that time. So, you know, Rick, uh, Rick had a three day meeting before the meeting where we went to um, Mount Rainier. And I would say probably half of the participants, and it wasn't, there weren't a lot of members at that time. I think the entire ASE, ASES membership maybe, maybe was 50 people total. Um, and I would say 25 or 30 of them actually went to the Mount Rainier portion of it. And I, you know, I got to meet, you know, as a young, young surgeon and I brought my son and my wife uh, there and all the, mostly everybody that went brought their families. And as I said, I had no clue that this was an unusual event because it has never occurred since. And from what I'm told, it never occurred before that there was a pre-meeting meeting. Um, but I got to meet all the who's who of shoulder surgery at that time. And it was probably, I made some great friends, uh, which I probably wouldn't have made for many years uh, because of the environment that it was in. Um, and it was, it was, it was pr probably one of the better experiences I had as, as a shoulder surgeon. And there are many, many others. Uh, you know, the ASCS has evolved uh, a lot, in the, particularly in the last five or six years. And I think it evolved in ways that it needed to evolve in terms of being much more open and inclusive. Um, but as a result of that, uh, even putting COVID aside, the, the type of meeting that it's become it has changed um, because it's lost some of that smallness and intimacy and it's become a little bit bigger and more typical of, you know, large society meetings. But, you know, the smaller meeting as it was, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there are a lot of memories and most of them had nothing to do with the presentations or the, you know, the science. I can't remember probably anything that, uh, that I would say was notable, but you know, the things that occurred after the meeting, during the meeting, uh, friendships, uh, th those were, you know, those were invaluable. And, and, and they're professionally very, very, very important. Um, so, you know, ho hopefully, you know, we get back to some of that down the road in, in other ways. Now, when you reflect upon your involvement with, with the ASCS, it sounds like one of the things that's meant to you is the friendships you've made and how important that's been for, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, for your career. But tell, tell us a little bit about what else the society has meant to you. And then in addition, if you might talk a little bit about what you feel like was the most positive legacy of your presidency. Well, I don't know. I mean, my presidency was probably... Uh, not very notable. <laughs> I don't know that I did anything that I would say was um, changed the society. Um, you know, I think the value proposition to ASCS as I know it uh, is the fact that 
you know, you've got some pretty serious people in that society. And I don't mean in terms of their personality, but in terms of their dedication to the field. And I, and I think most people that I know that are shoulder elbow surgeons, they're, um, they're very approachable people. Uh, and I think some of that's because they're orthopedic surgeons. And I think most of us are pretty down to earth and approachable in our own, you know, our own specialty area. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how it is in hip and knee and spine and other things, but I, I think this, the shoulder and elbow group, they're pretty socially adept people. Um, and, and I have enjoyed that. And, and I think, you know, it's helped my career tremendously because I've worked with these folks, not just at meetings, but, you know, in other, other venues and, and things that I've, you know, I, I've done a lot of consulting work for the implant companies over the years. And, you know, sometimes you say, well, is that really high science? Is, well, it's not. I mean, sometimes there's some research or some things you do, but, you know, the relationships you build both within industry and the people you work with, I find to be very rewarding and intellectually stimulating. Uh, obviously, there's some financial gains that come from it, but, but I think the, the interactions you have with your, you know, your fellow surgeons and some of the engineers, and I've learned a tremendous amount from doing stuff in industry, things that I, I brought to, to, to my workplace in terms of um, my, my day job, so to speak. Um, I don't think I would have been as successful as I was um, in, you know, the stuff that we developed out of the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, all that intellectual property that was sold to Zimmer and sold to Arthrex, you know, came all out of the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that was all intellectual property that we developed at the clinic with software engineers and with people. We developed a software company. Uh, we eventually sold it uh, over the last several years. But all of that, you know, would never have occurred if I didn't have the passion to do it. I didn't have the skill set to do it. If I didn't have the PhD that I think helped a lot. But also, if I weren't at the Cleveland Clinic, it would have never happened. Uh, and if I didn't have some of those relationships with industry and developing, you know, these little widget projects that I call them, you know, you develop this implant or that implant there, you know, cumulatively, that familiarity kind of comes together when you're developing your own company and you've got to worry about driving, you know, a company and a product to, you know, to a clinical arena. I mean, we sold that product with FDA approved product. The FDA did not approve the product after we licensed it. We got the FDA approvals and did the clinical trials before we even licensed the stuff. So, you know, there's no way we could have done that had it not been for, you know, these little widget projects that you do with, with industry. So. You know, I, I think you've got to look at, you know, the collective experience between ASCS and having those friendships and those relationships that help you with, you know, getting involved in some kind of, you know, 
um, development projects with, 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 with a company and maybe giving lectures and talks, all of it kind of comes together cumulatively. And if you do it early enough in your career and you do it for the right reasons, it's not, yes, you get paid for it, but it's not about the money. It's about all the other things that come from it. And if you realize that and you, you extract that value, that value to you is multiples of what you got paid by the hour to do the consulting work. And if, and if you only look at that experience and that, that interaction as a way to make money, it's okay, but it's not the real value. And, and, you're, and you're not extracting the real value that over the course of 30 or 40 years play, pays multiples in terms of return on your investment. So, I mean, that's the advice I would give people, you know, about those types of relationships. Uh, you know, you, you got to look at your career as, you know, as a marathon and that each of these little pieces come together to make you what you think you want to be, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later. Uh, you know, so you got to look at none of the things you do should be short term goals. They ought to be with the intent that you're putting these building blocks together uh, to be whatever you think you want to be. And, and that's the difference, I think, between somebody who you see who's a young, energetic, driven student of orthopedics, not a practitioner, but a student of orthopedics. You're looking to build on each experience over the course of many years to be whatever you envision yourself to be. And I think I saw that very, very, very early. If I go back and read the one page, two page thing that I wrote when I said, this is why I want to be an orthopedic resident. I think I fulfilled every bit of that more times over than I thought I would. But I knew, you know, I used to read every time we had a visiting professor come to University of Penn as a resident, I would get their CV and read it. And I would read it to say, what did they do in college, med school, residency, post-residency, NIH thing? And how did, how, just looking at their CV, how did they piece together all the things they did when they were 20 years old and 30 years old and look at where they are when they're 50 years old and they're coming to Penn to give, you know, the keynote speaker for residence day or whatever. The, each of those people is sort of a case study. And if you pay attention to it, you realize where they put all these bits and pieces together to be wherever they are at that point in time. And I think you're, you're selling the process short if you say, I'm here and I wanna be here and don't realize there's a 500 little steps to go from this to that. And they're not all the same steps. I mean, there are plenty of different ways to get there, but nobody got there by virtue of, you know, being handed to them. They, they, they did something that, and they, and I don't know if they did it consciously or unconscious. I know I did mine consciously. I, I had a set of plans that, you know, I 
we all de de deviate and detour. It's not like it's a straight line, but but there's no question that you have to look at everything that you do, every patient you see, every whatever, to say these are each little building blocks to go from where I am to where I want to be. That's the advice I would give somebody. If they're really students of orthopedia, they're not practitioners, they're a student. They're learning, constantly asking questions, constantly trying to go from the known to the unknown, because that's where you're going to work. You're going to be working in the unknown to get new data to get to the known again. And as soon as you get to the known, you're going to be look and say, what's the next thing that we don't know? So, and that's actually the fun of being a student of orthopedics because it's never boring. It's never to a point where you say, it's just another case or another whatever. It, there's always a sense of saying there's information here. How do I extract it to, to build something that I want to be wherever I'm going? You know, I'm at the end of my, you know, I got another 10 plus years, but, it, you know, compared to where I was year, many years ago, I'm more at the end than the, than the middle. So, but the curiosity is still there. You know, it's, you can't, you can't put a lid on that one. You know, speaking of the unknown, what do you think is going to be the next big thing in shoulder surgery and in general mm -hmm. in orthopedics over the next decade? If you could, if you could predict one thing for shoulder surgery and for ortho in general, what do you think it's going to be? You know, I, I think understanding the biology of of healing and pathogenesis of disease. You know, I, I I've we've spent the last ten years, and again, we is the big we because it's a lot of people trying to understand what factors influence outcome. And, um, and we all do that. And, you know, the bigger your data set and the more granular and quality of the data there is, and you look at patient factors and disease factors, and surgical factors, and you look at the variation in outcome, you begin to realize even with very serious, well done, large data set that you can explain maybe 40% of the of the variation and obviously that could mean that there are a whole bunch of factors that you haven't controlled for you haven't measured but the reality is that human beings are very different creatures from one another and their biology and how they heal and what those drivers are are probably the other 60 percent that you have not begun to measure you know, and in cancer care, we call that, you know, personalized medicine and understand the genetic basis of the tumor and trying to understand how, you know, the, the, the pharmacokinetics of the drug are metabolized by those particular cells and why some cancers are more responsive or less responsive and, you know, the same tumor, but different people. So, you know, I think that's going to be the next horizon. Um, you know, I, I think unraveling some of the, you know, some of the responses to basic healing and biology probably will give us some insight on how to manipulate that part of what we do. So we're not thinking so much 
as uh, the mechanical, you know, sutures and how many throws and what type of suture and did you do a, you know, a suture bridge or double row? I mean, I think, you know, those are important questions, but they scratch the surface of why one person heals and another doesn't. Uh, and age and gender and all the things we measure because they're simple enough to measure, you know, obviously have important correlations with the basic biology of how it's healing. Now, unfortunately, I am not very optimistic that we're going to answer those questions in the near term. Um, and unfortunately, that's because I don't think we have enough researchers in that particular field. Um, I don't think there's enough clinicians that are serious about answering those questions. I don't think there's enough funding to answer those questions. And unfortunately, I think, you know, the severity of the diseases we treat are nowhere near as impactful to your, to societal well-being as cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's and things that, you know, um, are probably more impactful in an ACL tear or rotator cuff tear. So, you know, the, the resources that go into answering some of those questions are probably not going to be there in the foreseeable future. So, but I think that's the next horizon. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, there, I've got involved in a, in a, um, you know, a, a bunch of research studies that look, were looking at growth factors that influenced um, rotator cuff healing. And, and there was one of them that really looked promising. And uh, it was the, the proprietary um, genetically engineered factor was owned by a company. Um, and uh, Lou Saslowski and I were working with that company, uh, doing some pretty reasonably good basic research to understand how it worked and how it might work in an animal model. And, you know, after probably three or four years of spending time working with that product, um, turned out it was abandoned by the company. Um, and it was purely economics. You know, they realized what it was going to cost to develop it, to, to get it through the FDA, to get specific labeling. They looked at the impact of the problem, rotator cuff tear. They looked at the size of the market and they said at the end of the day, it's just not, it's not economically reasonable to develop this product, which was only good for that application soft tissue repair uh and they just didn't have the will to do it and they spent a boatload of money uh doing it um you know it was that research project that we published that looked at um it's a clinical study we looked at the time after rotator cuff repair where tears reoccur and we published it in JBJS. And the um, study was, I think, 100 and some odd uh, rotator cuff repair patients. And we got multiple MRIs. In fact, that was the pilot study that we did that first began to define this 
concept of failure with continuity. Uh, it was like 19 or so patients out of the 120 some odd that we published on. And basically we showed that 50% of the tears that occur after surgery recur between three months and six months, which we really didn't think would be the case. We figured 80% of them were all going to be in the first, you know, two to three months. Um, but the reason I'm telling you this story is that that study cost the company who sponsored it probably three million bucks, two or three million bucks. And the study was being done specifically to define the parameters to create a cohort of patients to study this growth factor, which would have cost them probably a hundred million dollars to do. And so they were basically just spending two or three million just to do this small study to power the bigger study. So again, this is how pharma thinks beyond what we think about what we're asking for a small grant for two or three hundred thousand dollars. And we got some, we got some good data out of it. We got some interesting information. It was the pilot study for our failure with continuity study? Um, but you know, they abandoned it after doing the study. We thought, my God, this is going to be great. We're actually going to do this controlled cohort study, randomized control with and without this growth factor. And they just said, too much money. It's this too small a market. This is not that important. You know, why, why are we even doing this? You know, you know, and that little pilot study that we did off the backs of this pharma company, um, was the basis for our, our NIH grant. So we have a five, we're on our fifth year of a, um, a R01 study looking at failure with continuity in a much larger cohort of patients with Kathy Derwin and I are, are the co-PIs on that. And it's up for a competitive renewal at this point in time. But, but it, it, again, it shows how you can go from a, a company uh, you know, you're doing this as sort of a consultant slash researcher. We didn't have any financial uh, involvement in it, but, you know, we were doing the research for a company. It funded a small portion of the 120 some odd patients that were, and it was well, I mean, we knew exactly what we were doing. We were using their money and we put in maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of our money to get this sort of nested cohort in this larger study to do our little pilot work with the intent to saying, well, if we get this pilot work done, we can do something else. And that's what I meant by saying, you know, how do you put all these little bits and pieces together if you can see the big picture? The key is seeing the big picture. When we developed, so I got about $5 million in grant support for the software, um, development of the preoperative planning software and PSIs, and that was through the state of Ohio. But I knew that we had to develop uh, a clinical cohort to prove that the, that the PSIs were working. So when we developed the clinical study, and we spent probably about $2 million of the money that we raised for that company, to establish a cohort that we're still studying to this day. Uh, and in fact, that cohort that we 
started studying the, the stuff. We published the stuff on different types of PSIs. There's been a JBGS, but the point of the study is that we could have done just a simple study, cadaver study. We could have done a patient study where we just looked at the accuracy. But we knew that if we enrolled enough patients in that study and followed them longitudinally, that we would be able to answer questions about factors that associated with early loosening of all polyglinoid implants. I mean, I just knew that that was the right way to structure a study that would have much, much important value five years later. Um, and it took us three years to enroll all the patients. And we just got our first NIH R01 grant, actually Eric Ricchetti is the PI, to get the five to seven year follow-up on those patients we enrolled literally in 2010. So that's a 10 year study that I would honestly say that that was the intent when we, we designed that study. It was not just simply to say, we're gonna prove how PSIs work or don't work or what their value proposition was. That's a three month study, that's a, you know, not even three months. So you can do that in two months. But you sort of realize that if you structure it a slightly different way with a different intent, you can answer questions that would have been far more important than just understanding, you know, where does the PSI work or does it work? So again, I, that's, that's the difference between just being an orthopedic surgeon and understanding that you're a student of orthopedics. Big difference. I'm going to get off my pedestal of my whatever podium, whatever the hell you call that. Uh, uh, I, I've said enough. Well, you've um, you've answered a question I've had for a long time, which is how you funded that cuff study. Because I read that study, and first off, as I mentioned in the beginning, that's a study that has totally changed the way that I talk to patients after cuff repair. So it's incredibly valuable, but. I'd always went when I read it, I was like, this is a really expensive study. <laughs> and in the study, in the, it is in the, an expensive the study. there's no, there's no like NIH grant. I was like, I don't know, did the Cleveland Clinic give him millions of dollars to do this research? Where did this money come from? Now I get it. Yeah. So the pharma, what we had to do is convince them that if we put some markers in the tendon and we paid for the CAT scan because they were already paying for the MRI that it wasn't going to adversely affect the outcome of what they were gonna do. And we promised them that we would pay for whatever uh, additional cost there was, which was pretty nominal for those, I forget the number of patients, but it was, uh, it, I think it was maybe 19 patients or something. We wanted to do more, but we couldn't enroll enough patients to get to a higher number, but that's where it was. And, you know, that was a matter of saying, and we've done this multiple other times where, you know, you, you, somebody comes and approaches you because they've got a goal, but you've got a different goal <laughs> and you realize you can use some of their money to serve your purpose. Uh, and, you know, that's again, that, those are good partnerships because it's a win-win, but that's how we did that. Uh, and that, you know, took us another seven years of 
kind of pounding away at it before we got funded, uh, you know, the NIH study. But you know, the, the vault model, that, you know, that, that was, that, that stupid project started with a, um, I forget what we got, maybe $50,000 for, um, from Depew to, to study the interior of the glenoid vault. That was the study. What's the shape of the vault? That was, that, that we have, that thing probably is 30 or 40 million dollars of, of licensing fees that came from that little stupid $50,000 project because once we got the data, I knew that it had much more implications than simply saying this is the shape of the vault because once we started putting that model into pathologic bones, we said, boy, if you follow these simple rules, you can have some better understanding of what the pre-morbid the pre-morbid um, morphology of the glenoid was and once we realized that and that was jason scalise and i did that work back in 2006 or 7 or somewhere in that ballpark then i realized i had a pre-operative planning tool and then we went after money from the state of ohio because they would be willing to give us money if we developed a company and we created jobs for the state of Ohio. So that was their ROI was they were fueling from the tobacco money in the state of Ohio, they were fueling um, job creation. And so we said, sure, you know, you know, this is our plan. This is what we're going to do. You know, it took us several years to get there, but, you know, we raised probably seven or eight million bucks that came out of that. Um, and as I said, that, that, that cohort of patients that we enrolled, I think we enrolled a couple of hundred patients in that study. Um, actually, Eric Ricchetti just got his first R01 funded from, uh, from that cohort to look at the five to seven year follow-up. So again, it's, it's a matter of saying, you know, how do you put all these little bits and pieces together to make something and how do you bring the collaborators and people together? You know, if, if you're, if you're not in the right environment, it's really, really hard to do any of that. Um, and if you're in the right environment, you kind of have to have, um, you know, it's almost like being a chess master. You kind of know where the people are. You can kind of bring those people together, but again, you can't be parasitic. It, it's got to be that the people you bring together, it, it's a symbiotic relationship where each of them gets something much, much bigger than they could have otherwise gotten by themselves. And that's what makes great partnerships. Well, Dr. Arnani, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and talk with us about your experiences. It's, it's certainly been valuable for me to, to listen to all your wisdom. Um, and I'm certainly our, our, our listeners will find a value as well. Good. Hopefully it helps. As I said, for me, it's been the biggest blast of my life. It's, uh, I wouldn't trade it in for, for anything. It's, it's been a, it's been a great ride and it's not over yet. I got a few more tricks up my sleeve. <laughs> well, with that in mind, more to come. So for all our listeners, stay tuned. With that in mind, that's all the time we have for this podcast here tonight. We want to thank our guests so much for spending 
uh, so much time with us and talking about life and experiences and surgery and science and combining all of that. Um, for all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.